0: afternoon, everyone. So, we're at our first um, talking session, which is fact or fiction, and I want to look with you at various evidences for the Bible that show its supernatural nature, that show it is clearly giving us authentic biblical history. I want us to begin in the land of Egypt, Egypt one of the greatest, oldest civilizations, and they've left us a lot of historical information that's very colorful, and it gives us a point of comparison with the Word of God, the history that's contained in Scripture. You'll notice on screen that there's a reference to Atom and the nine gods, known to the Egyptians as the Enead. And this would seem to fit very closely uh, with the Bible's mention of Adam the first man. Notice the similar sounding of Atom and Adam. It's more than that phonetic connection. They have the same meaning in the different languages. And after Adam, we have nine Bible patriarchs before the flood. So, in a sense, they were the ancestors of the entire human race, according to Scripture. Now, the Egyptians, like many ancient peoples and some today, would tend to deify their ancestors. And so, it's not surprising. They talk about Atom and the nine gods, the Ennead, and that reflects what's truly in Scripture. But although you find that in the Turin uh, uh, document about the kings in Egypt, there's also, in the Book of the Dead, so-called, mention of Nu and the eight gods. And Nu is not very different as a word from Noah. Ancient languages, as you compare them, there's very often that kind of connection. And if you think of how Noah was one of eight persons, according to Scripture, that survived the great flood, and from whom from eight of them, the whole earth was repopulated. So they too were ancestors of the human race as it exists today. And again, the Egyptian thought of deifying their ancestors, that graphic on the right-hand side shows in the Book of the Dead the eight Ogdoad hoeing the earth after the first sunrise, associated with a flood in the annals of Egypt. So, there are clear connections between Egyptian history and what we find authoritatively in scripture. Let's move from Egypt to China. And uh, there was a time when a missionary called Kang, along with a medical pathologist, Ethel Nelson, were struggling to break through in evangelism to the Chinese people. The Chinese were not receptive because they thought, certainly through Ethel Nelson, that Christianity was a white person's religion, it was a kind of colonialism being imposed upon them that was counter to their own culture. The breakthrough came when Kang and Nelson discovered that the most ancient form of the Chinese characters were pictographic. They spelt out meaning through pictures, and those pictures made sense to everyone because there was a shared story from which those pictures were drawn as symbols of words. And it became clear that that original shared story in the land of China was the story of the book of Genesis. I remember once putting this to the test. I was on holiday somewhere, and I met two young Chinese women, and I said, can I test this on you? Think back very clearly, picture in your mind, what is the form as a pictograph." of the Chinese word for boat. Picture it. And they, I could see them concentrating. I said, is it made up of symbols, shown top left with you, of a vessel and the number eight and a mouth symbol representing a person? And they kind of look for a second, and then their faces beamed, and they said, yes, that's right. This is true. And you can see many, many instances of this that gives us the whole story of the early part of Genesis, the biblical account. It was known in ancient times to the Chinese people. I remember once in the early days of the fellowship's website, uh, corresponding with someone who introduced herself as Susie. Her real name was Zhang Yanning, and I didn't know which part of China she was from, but we were going through John's gospel, and it was clearly new to her, And at a point I said to her, whereabouts are you? Are you in Beijing or wherever are you? She says, actually, I'm studying in Glasgow. I said, amazing, I'm due to be speaking in Glasgow at a church in two weeks' time. Can I meet you there? So we met up, and she came night after night. I said, I want to share with you this idea from your own ancient language. And she followed it through, and on the third night, she was ready to give her life to Christ. And as she made her prayer, when I said God, she was saying Shangdi. And so this again and again has been verified. But just look at the picture, the pictograph in the center there. It's about the word to covet or desire. And it's made up of two trees at the top, and then a woman, and it equals covet or desire and so we can easily think of the story of the Garden of Eden, the book of Genesis. And so it goes on, many, many examples. The Bible rings true in the land of China from ancient times. Let's go global. Uh, As you look at the matrix that's presented there between flood traditions all around the world, you can see along the top, across the columns, 20 different geographical areas or people groups, And coming down vertically, down through the rows, there are facets of the Bible story of the great flood from Genesis 6 through 9, such things as divine judgment, uh, such things as formation of an ark, and those who survive worshiping God, birds being sent out, etc. And you see the correlation between what peoples all around the world in their folklore from ancient times believe actually happened, that there was a global inundation of the planet in early times of human history. This, if you like, is the one most haunting memory on the planet Earth, and it's truly recorded in the Word of God. There was a man called Mahoney, and he thought the Bible was a lot of baloney. This is a filmmaker called Tim Mahoney, but he must have had enough interest to prove himself wrong that when he was in Egypt whether he was filming there, or he went there to carry out investigations. But when he was there, he did carry out investigations. And he was in consultation with an archeologist, an Austrian archeologist, Bietak, who explained to him the work that he'd been doing for 25 years, digging just south of and underneath a city that later came to be known as Ramses, built by Ramses II. And it was the ancient city of Avaris. And it was very clear from the archaeological finds that the Egyptians regarded the occupants of Avaris as being Asiatics, as they called them, people that had come from the land of Canaan. So here was a city in Egypt occupied by people from the land of Canaan. And we know Jacob's family came down and they began to dwell in the area of Goshen. The papyrus that's also shown there is the Egyptian version of the ten plagues in Scripture. And so, again and again, the Bible is shown to be authentic in the historical information that it provides us with. We come out from Egypt, from the Exodus, and Joshua is leading the people of God then into the land of Canaan, the conquest of the land of Canaan. And Joshua 6.20 speaks about those walls, the walls of Jericho that came tumbling down. Is there any evidence for that? Well, the famous archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon studied the archaeological remains of the city of Jericho, and she could verify it had been burned with fire, but she could find no trace of those walls that had come tumbling down because she was looking in the wrong place. She was looking at a level in the strata that corresponded to the 13th century B.C. But Bible chronology would put the conquest of Canaan in the 15th century B.C. And so when Dr. Wood uh, came to look at the right level in the soil, he could indeed find, and he's shown there standing at the base off on the left and a top on the right of the collapsed mud-brick wall of Jericho with evidence that God had used an earthquake to bring that wall down. We come into the time of the kings as we make our journey through Scripture, comparing the biblical information with what can be cross-referenced from historical records around the world. You know, it used to be thought by the, the skeptics that David in the Bible, the David we grew up with knowing in Sunday school, the shepherd boy who defeated the giant Goliath and became that famous king of Israel, all the skeptics said, he's just a mythological figure. He's like Hercules, because we can't find anything in history, in archaeology that supports the existence of a real character called David. But of course, given enough time, they did. And uh, this stela, which just refers to an upright stone with inscriptions upon it, uh, dating to about 900 B.C., which would be about 100 years after David, has the inscription upon it, House of David. So the skeptics had to eat humble pie and recognize David was a character of history, as the Bible had affirmed him so to be. We could multiply many like this. Just one more, another stela, Known as the Mishastila or the Moabite stone. It has inscriptions which show a connection between kings of Israel mentioned in the Bible and Moabite and other foreign kings. So the Bible is real history. They're not made-up stories, they are real characters of history. And of course, we didn't really need archaeology to confirm that, although when we're talking to skeptics, it's good that we have the information that we can share with them. Because the Lord Jesus, when he was here, he affirmed the characters of the Old Testament as being real characters of history. In my reading, not many days ago, I was reading through Second Kings chapter eighteen, Good King Hezekiah, and how at one point Hezekiah, being threatened by the Assyrian superpower of his day, had paid money to them to go away. It was not what he should have done, and soon they were back, and he had to pray to God for deliverance. And God did deliver Hezekiah and the people of Judah from Sennacherib. In one night, 185,000 were slain by God's remarkable divine intervention. But the very fact that Hezekiah had initially tried to buy off the Assyrians is not only recorded in Scripture, but it's recorded in the annals of Sennacherib, as has been discovered in archaeology. You read with me as children uh, Daniel in the Lion's Den. True story, of course, as all in the book of Daniel and all in scripture is. But there was once a book written by Sir Robert Anderson, I think, called Daniel in the Critic's Den because there was a time when Daniel was a book that was highly criticized by skeptics. These stories probably weren't true, but they were a good read anyway, weren't they? Well, Daniel escaped unscathed, as we know, from the lion's den. And the book of Daniel has escaped unscathed from the critic's den, because everything in the book of Daniel is true. And the one most famous thing that we can speak about is the Nabonidus Cylinder, Nabonidus was reckoned to be a king in uh, Babylon, but it was never thought that he was the father of a son called Belshazzar. Indeed, the skeptics, again, didn't think Belshazzar ever existed because there was no mention of him in archaeology. He wasn't known to history. So it was a little bit perplexing to read a verse like Daniel 5, 16. When Daniel was called in to the great feast of Belshazzar, and he was asked to interpret The writing by the hand upon the plaster of the royal palace wall over against the lampstand. Meeny, meeny, teckle, you parson. And he interpreted it. His reward was to be granted to be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third ruler? There's the king, and then it would be Daniel. But the Nabonidus cylinder tells us that Nabonidus, when he was king, had as his co regent his son Belshazzar and it's named, and the relationship is there in that cylinder. And when Nabonidus was away from base, away from his throne, the authority was vested in the hands of his son Belshazzar as his co-regent. And therefore, the highest honor that could be paid to Daniel would would be third, Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and then Daniel. How accurate the word of God is, and how it's vindicated time and time again by archaeological finds. The uh, story of the prophecy of Tyre in the book of Ezekiel is a wonderful story. Read it through chapter 26 of Ezekiel, and it tells us how various nations would come against Tyre. First of all, they're not named, but we can trace them in history. Nebuchadnezzar came, and he came as far as the coastline shown on the right-hand side of that schematic. But uh, he didn't have any navy, so he couldn't go beyond the coast. he ransacked the ancient mainland city of Tyre. But before he did so, the people of Tyre had taken all their treasure and escaped by boat to the island city of Tyre, which they then developed. And they could then thumb their nose at Nebuchadnezzar, who couldn't get to them, and he had to go away frustrated, leaving the original city in ruins, but the people untouched. But two and a half centuries or so later, according to what the Scripture predicted. Alexander the Great would come in his thrilling conquest of the world then, and he went further than Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he did what the Scripture had prophesied two and a half centuries earlier he would do. He took the stones and the timber that Nebuchadnezzar had left behind from the original mainland city, and he threw all in the water, and he built a causeway out to the island city of Tyre. And such was the requirement for materials for this undertaking that he even scraped all the soil from where the original city had been and put it in the waters. And he got out and he captured and ransacked the new city of Tyre. And yet, to this day, the ancient mainland city of Tyre has never been rebuilt, but it has been left like a bare rock because all the soil was scraped away by Alexander the Great. And it is, to this day, a place for the spreading of fishermen's nets, never been rebuilt. It was an unforgettable day when I was privileged on a trip to Israel to go into the shrine of the book. There's an aura about the place when you go into the shrine of the book. And there in the central dais on its circumference are the fragments of Isaiah. And it's all carefully controlled with its humidity and temperature. And there is Isaiah, and what was remarkable was this find in 1947 among the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, dated to 1,000 years earlier than any known manuscript at that time. And yet, when you compared them, there was no change. It was virtually the same. It showed the accuracy of the Word of God. An archaeological find that confirms that what we have is reliable. We have to come in closing to the New Testament and to the greatest story of all, because if we can't credibly believe in the historical accuracy of the story of the cross, then we can throw away our Bible. But of course we can. It was wonderful when they found the Caiaphas ossuary. An ossuary is a bone box. When the the Jews allowed the corpses to decompose, they then extracted the bones and they put them in a fancy box. And here's the ossuary of Caiaphas, high priest at the time of the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. And also there's Pilate's dedication stone. And although you can scarcely read it, you can just about see some of the outline of the characters carved in that stone. It does read that Pontius Pilate was there as the prefect of Judea at that particular time. What is truth? The Bible is truth. And the story of the cross is God's true redemptive history for us. Well, finally, we'll hear about the manuscript evidence, I'm sure, for the Bible as the Word of God later today. But just to put it very simply, that if you take your average classical piece of writing, the manuscript evidence for it and for its authenticity would pile up to about four feet— but if you take the manuscript evidence that supports the authenticity of the Bible, of the New Testament of the Bible as being authentic and genuine, it would pile up to one mile high. One mile compared to four feet. We can really trust our Bible. If we trust any ancient writing, we must trust the Bible as being authentic. Almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts, more than 18,000 in other languages. The evidence for the Bible is abundant and overwhelming. We're here to defend the Bible, are we? I'll leave you with a quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, Defend the Bible? I would sooner defend a lion.